This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. Brian Warren is an exercise scientist with a PhD focusing predominantly on the topics of exercise efficiency and fatigue, and that's the exact uh, topic we're going to be talking about in today's episodes, economy and efficiency. But what makes Ryan so valuable in his knowledge is he is also an athlete himself. He started cycling at a young age, progressed through uh, the junior ranks to a national level competitor as a track cyclist. And uh, more importantly and specifically, Ryan also switched to longer endurance riding and longer running, including now preparing for a marathon. And this insight into the different types of training from short distance track cycling to endurance riding and running, plus his knowledge of everything sports science makes it a really, really valuable episode. And we absolutely enjoyed this one because Ryan had some brilliant things to say and it became one of our longer episodes because there was just so much to dive into. And one of the things we want to say off the bat is that uh, we really talk about some pretty crazy specifics in this episode about efficiency and economy, and we get right into the sports science, which uh, Ryan just gives some really, really clear explanations that make it understandable for the layperson like us. But off air, once we finished the episode, we joked about the fact that while all this stuff is important, the most important thing for any endurance athlete, and especially any age grouper, is consistency. And that will trump anything you talk about in this episode. And that's not to, to devalue anything we talk about. We just want to make that point that uh, before you get caught up in the latest super shoe or the latest technology to improve your economy, make sure you're training properly first, and then you can have some fun with this stuff. And it really is fun to think about and to look at and to understand in yourself because you can get the most out of yourself when you, when you look at this topic of efficiency and economy. And we loved it, didn't we, Dad? I think it's a great summary you just gave us then, Jordan, and really uh, we delve into some really nitty-gritty things that are, you know, 0.2%, half a percent, 1% contributors to improved performance. And at the end of the day, that is what we're trying to extract on our podcast is for the everyday average athlete to to not only have a good training program and be consistent in their training, and if they've, if they've ticked those boxes, then these are really good add-ons that can actually make you another 1% better than you were last week if you just listen to the advice that's being given. And, and we, we do cover a lot of stuff that's kind of technical, but, but one of the things that Ryan does say is, remember, everything that's done in the lab may not relate to you exactly. Um, just because these are the rules in the lab that we've come out with, the, with this is the, the, what we recommend, you know, may not relate to you. So you need to actually practice some of the stuff that we're talking about in the real world and see if it affects or improves or or makes you worse than you were. Um, so these are things that uh, I think is a really good conversation. Um, we we do cover a lot of um, really technical topics about uh, you know running and bike efficiency and economy. Um, and you know I think there's a lot to be learned here. But remember, it, it's got to be relatable to you. And at the end of the day, that's what this podcast is all about. Let's get into the episode. It's a really good one. Hope you enjoy it. Brian, just first off the bat, a very big welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me on. It's uh, it's an exciting opportunity for me. It's I've listened to to a lot of the your podcast episodes in the in the past, and being a bit of a buff of all things cycling, running, triathlon, and sports science, it um, it's a good fit, I think. It's a great mix. We uh, we've talked to you a little bit. And we had a great conversation with you last week, and we can't wait to see what this uh, conversation will. 
unfold. Uh, before we get into the nitty-gritty of sports science, uh, we want to talk about uh, some of the recent athletic events. We don't normally do this with the guests, but we were just talking off air about how good uh, some of the Commonwealth game results were, specifically Ollie Hoare in the 1500 and Peter Bowles silver in the uh, 800. So, yeah, let's get into it. And you just said something really interesting before we hit record, and that was you were puzzled by Peter Bowles' tactic. And there's, you cannot take away a silver at the Commonwealth Games. That is unbelievable. But he probably had a chance at gold. So, so let us know your thoughts. What what puzzled you about his tactics? Yeah, well, I mean, as as you said, the the most important thing is a you know a silver at at Commonwealth Games is is still a medal. It's certainly something that that I could not achieve. But um, to be yeah, to be quite honest, I was a bit puzzled by how he raced it. I mean, for for a guy who's capable of of mid to high one forty four um, pace for the eight hundred, I, I think I think that strategy to, to to sit and kick was probably not didn't really play into his hand um, so much. I, th- I think he probably could have probably could have won that race um, had he had he kind of progressively ramped up a bit rather than let it let it you know pan out as it did. What were your thoughts, Dad? Yeah, no, I kind of agree with Ryan. I I really would rather him sit right on the shoulder and not have to chase the gap down. Um, I think that was the mistake down the back straight, um, letting a gap go. Uh, I, you know, you can't give a ta- – they're all talented, aren't they? Everybody in that race. You, you, you know, from a, from a if you look at it from a cycling point of view and, and do an, an analogy with running, if you're in a sprint situation as a cyclist and you have got no headwind, and you give someone who can sprint equally as fast as you, if you give them a bike or two bike lengths head start, you have to ride one or two kilometers an hour faster than a guy who can match you. So you're not going to beat him. So I think they should take a little bit of thought process at, you know, from, from that point of view. Well, don't give someone five meters head start and expect to run them down when they're still equally as good as you at the finish. Um, maybe Inga Britson can can do that, or you know, or Ollie Hoare can do that. Now. Yeah, good segue. Um, but uh, but certainly, I think I agree. He could have won that race had his tactics been. And boy, did we want him to win that race. Um, and I suppose all of Australia was. But but uh, tactics are so important in in these events, and you just can't give people that much head start. That's my opinion. Yeah, and it, it's one of the great conundrums of championship racing, though. Like you you look at the the fifteen hundred that Ollie Hoare run. I mean, he's a, he's a fantastic fifteen hundred meter runner, but he wasn't the fastest in that field. I mean, Jake, Jake Whiteman won the world championships. Tim Tim Chariot's got a faster PB than all of them. Um, but the way that race panned out was was perfect. I mean, it's stark contrast to most of the diamond leagues. You see, you know, the pace go out really early and, and often in the past, it's been Stewie McSwain driving that pace and I always watch it and I'm puzzled. As I'm go- going, guys, what, why are you driving through at this pace? The guy that's that's the fastest in the race is sitting back in the mid-pack. Like, like what you, you're kind of playing it into his hand, letting him sit and kick. Um, but I guess that's the that's the... You know the nuance to championships racing. It's it's not just about dosing and delivering, you know, a, a, a per kilometer pace or power. It's about knowing how to read the situation and when to respond. And and from my perspective, what makes that really interesting is that as a sports scientist, you can't just say X power wins the race or X pace wins the race 
because it's just not true. There's so much that goes into that mix. Uh, just he said it in his post-race interview. Uh, he, you know, he he was in a really good position uh, coming into the straight, um, but being in a good, good good position there doesn't always equal a good result. And he said, "I just had the legs in the in the last hundred, and that was quite a contrast to his world champs uh, result, where he didn't even qualify for the final. He actually just didn't have the legs in the last hundred. So you're exactly right, Ryan. So many things need to come into place to equate to a gold medal win, and it happened for him. Yep. What were you going to say, Dad? Yeah, I don't know what I was going to say because I was so intrigued uh, into uh, into what we were talking about. But uh, no, the, con- the you, you did right. Look, the the message that I've tried to get across you and I, Jordan, on a lot of our podcasting is the data is so important, but it's not going to de- be the determining factor of the result in racing. Um, Time trialing is a completely different story because you are one up against yourself and the clock. Whereas in a in a running race or in a criterion bike race or road race, you definitely have to take into consideration other factors. And and you know how many times have we seen the best bike rider in? in I'm talking World Tour Pro racing or B grade club racing, the best bike rider doesn't always win i mean the the guy with the best bike rider wins by the way the, the guy <laughs> with the best power the guy with the best power doesn't necessarily win and you know that's exactly what ryan said you know just because there's guys who've who who can run a, a 328 for 1500 it doesn't guarantee they're going to win unless they actually tactically run the a better race than the guys around them and championship races are always in, inadvertently run slower like that was quite in, impressive and that's why it was a 1500 meter race for the ages because it was a 330 and you normally a, a championship race mm. is is one in 334 or 335 and it's a tactical thing and it ends up guys don't want to risk anything because it's the biggest race of their career and the Commonwealth Games or the World Championships or the Olympic Games, they're the biggest races. I mean, I'm not in Commonwealth Games up with with uh, Olympics and World Championships, but it's still a it's a it's a championship event that means a lot to you know to a lot of people and and that's the day you want to perform and. And if you don't get everything right on that day, you're going to come off second best. And it's you can't just rely on pure ability. It has to be, you know, the smartest bike rider will win every race and he's got to have everything. He's got to have good power, uh, good race tactics and the ability to make good decisions as quick as he can and react to things that are happening. And, you know, in an 800 or a 1500, geez, there's some decisions you have to make. You know, is this person in form who's just gone to the front and pushing it? Is this pace too hard? And we see Inga Britson do this all the time. He, he's in a 1500, he, he starts back to the back third and lets McSwain, you know, take off and run his pace and, and they end up coming together at the end and, and you know, each person's got to back their own method of what they think they can get the best outcome with. And, you know, we know that Inga Britson's a more methodical style of runner. And funnily enough, Whiteman in the World Championships, if I can go on a run here, you know, cut him off completely in that last 150 and through Inga Britson's race standard tactic, which was go to the front and just run the legs off the runners. And that threw him, it not only threw his stride out because he got cut off, but he actually then had to come back round Whiteman if he wanted to win and he couldn't do it. And and that's an example of someone taking away someone else's race strategy, which was brilliant by Whiteman. And, and you know, you got to take your hat off to him. That was 
Execution 101 um, and it got him a world title, which he probably would never in his wildest dreams thought that he could be the, the world champion at this stage when there's so many good runners in that race. Yeah, it, it, you know, I, I read a lot of um, of stoic philosophy and it reminds me of that, of that quote by Seneca, which is, um, success happens when opportunity meets preparation. And, and I think there's, to, to go on a, a tangent to training, like, it shows the importance of he might certainly from my philosophy. One of the most critical things you can do in training is it, it, less so in a specific preparation block eight weeks out from an event, but in general, is train train a lot, train broad bases. Like, are you hitting your sprint sprint efforts, your VO two efforts, your strength efforts, your endurance efforts? Because the reality is, you don't you don't know what is going to win a race. And I mean, again, talking about fifteen hundreds and championship racing, like at the world's just gone by the you know the the women's 1500 opening lap was 56 seconds and that's like that's phenomenally fast that's 800 meter pace um yeah and, and it's not something you typically say faster yeah yeah um i you have so many valuable things to say on this uh ryan and so we're going to get into your expertise and your topics on training uh, last special mention i wanted to say from the com games was abby coldwell's bronze medal in the 1500 I uh, thought that was unbelievably impressive when she was up against, you know, the two other Aussie women in that 1500-meter final were two finalists at the Olympics. Um, and Abby Caldwell um, got her shot and took it and got a bronze medal, which was absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. My, well, well, my last shout-out, I, I, I would say just Stenson for me. That's like, that's such a performance. Um, to come back from, you know, from injury and having to do cross-training on the elliptical um, after a kid to to then come back and run two twenty five in Perth and then and then win the Com Games that's that's something really special and really special that you know three out of the the, the top five are Aussie women in their mid thirties to early forties who are also all mums that's that's pretty cool to see I think absolutely yeah let's get into the uh, the, the nitty gritty and the topic of today and uh, your absolute specialty Ryan um, and that is sports science and the first question we normally ask our guests is on their specialty and that is what does sports science mean to you um, that's a great question I've not you've caught me off guard a bit I've never actually been asked <laughs> that but yeah I mean to me sports science if I was to sum it up in one word it'd be it would be optimization Um as we kind of hinted at, there's there's so many things that go into the recipe to to make the you know the the, the right meal, um, or in this case, so many so many things that go into making the right athlete. And it's difficult to know what is going to make someone better, um, what is going to make someone improve their their performance, make them become more robust, make them become um, you know less injury prone. And and every person is is unique in in what what gives them those abilities. And so for me, sports science is about teasing out what makes someone the way they are. Like, are, are they good because they have a you know a high VO two max? So, um, do they lack do they lack explosive strength? Um, maybe maybe it's something less less um, physical. Maybe they you know they don't have the the psychological resilience to to deal with them. The, the pain that's that's experienced in a half marathon. Uh, maybe maybe they you know are really shocking at, at understanding their own emotions, and so their their overall training load becomes becomes too high because they can't regulate their stress. And so so it's taking all of those elements of of science, um, physiological, t- tactical, and perceptual, and then trying to integrate them and, and optimize someone to make them better at what they do. 
what a great answer. That I could not have wished for someone to say something like that as an answer. Uh, that that summarizes everything that we we kind of are trying to achieve, isn't it? We're trying to optimize, get the best out of ourselves, and and boy, that takes some doing, doesn't it? Because there's so many facets that are involved in what you've just said. Mm, there are, and one of the so I think I've had this um, fortunate experience being both an, an academic who works in sports science but but also an athlete for many years and a coach for many years and understanding that a, a lot of academics really frustrate me because because the answer when you when you put a question to them is it, it depends you know you you say what about what about this physiological mechanism or this test and and they'll give you this kind of gray answer and for the academic literature a gray answer is great but but you can't say to an athlete you're coaching you know, well, your your functional threshold power is somewhere between two hundred and fifty and three hundred and fifty, because it's not it's useless, right? They might they might be training way too easy or way too hard, um, and so and so for coaches, it's it's oftentimes, you know, you're living right at the the bleeding edge of sports science. I guess you you have to you have to take it and try and implement it and see, and see what works. O- oftentimes, before science catches up, there's been a lot of examples of that and. And I've loved to hear some of the the really good, effective sports scientists and exercise physiologists who have had experience themselves in coaching or in personal experience from actually being an athlete. And and they are definitely saying that that you know a lot of the greatest learnings that we have are from what worked for an athlete to win a to win a time trial or a world title or and then they go backwards and see what did they do in that program and and then we kind of formulate an opinion that oh these sessions worked and I know it's individual for this athlete but that seems to be a better way and even we talked to Dr Louise Professor Louise Burke on nutrition she was saying a similar thing with with her expertise in nutrition was you know what some of the best performances that athletes have had we looked at how their nutrition was on race day and what their lead up and what they consumed, you know, in the six week period and their, their most hardest training period, and they learnt more about that than saying this is what you should do and try that and see what happens. Um, and, and I mean that she's a, she's a great example um, of a, of someone who has often debunked things that that have not worked. Um, I mean there are, there are examples of, of when sports science is slow to catch up, but she her her work in in nutrition has largely debunked the idea of this low carb diet but but it took athletes and, and sports people you know there, there was five years of tr- trying with low carb diets with with exogenous ketones and whatever before the science caught up and i mean it was a, a lot of her work that showed that you know that type of diet actually impaired um, anaerobic metabolism but that's an example of where science has proven it wrong but but i mean the flip side of that coin that perhaps the most famous example is the the high jump, the Fosbury flop. I mean, Dick Fosbury came through with that that technique, you know, and and it took te- two years for everyone else to move from the Western roll into the Fosbury flop, and it it took science another ten to say why it was a better technique. Um, it doesn't matter if you, if you jump high, if you clear the bar, then you know that it's obviously working, isn't it? 
It's happening right now. We're seeing training groups around the world and this is the beauty of, of social media and how connected the world is. You get really good access into what different training groups are doing. You know, we talk heaps on this podcast about what the Norwegians are doing, but we get to also see what Australian training groups are doing, you know, middle distance training groups and um, international training groups. You see a lot of the different training groups in America, the Bamberman Track Club, and they really, they break down their sessions. They're giving so much info. And you're seeing which groups are adopting certain methods and which ones are slow to catch up and uh, what the results are from the athletes on the world stage and that's really exciting to see but it is interesting to see yeah what's what people are slow to to adapt to it and uh who's taking advantage of the most cutting edge stuff and and being willing to implement it and risk risk it on their athletes early Mm. yeah what uh what teams are taking pork burritos hey (laughs) <laughs> for those that don't know that's a reference to an athlete that got done from the bowman track club um and she tried to claim that yeah the, the drug drugs were in the pork burritos which was just everyone just absolutely dragged her through the mud for it because it was such a pathetic excuse um anyway moving on to ryan to your to your expertise and uh you did a phd basically in efficiency and economy and uh you can explain a bit more detail specifically what it was on but can you start by defining those terms what they mean specifically efficiency and economy and, and why they're so important yeah well economy we'll start with economy so um it's a, it's the easier term to to come to terms with that's a terrible segue <laughs> easier to easier to get your head around so economy is just the the oxygen costs for a given workload so if you're running at four minute pace um, do you consume 200 mils of, of oxygen per kilometer or if you're riding at you know 300 watts again are you consuming 200 200 mils of oxygen um, per kilometer of distance um, so that that's just it, and it's it's most likened to, to fuel economy of a car. Like what what what? How much fuel does your car consume? Is is it kind of uneconomical and it's ten liters per hundred k, or is it super economical and it's it's four point eight per hundred k? And that's that's what we're referring to with economy. Um, and efficiency is a related concept, but not quite the same. And so efficiency is is predominantly used in cycling, and and it's when we have a mismatch between external work and internal cost. And so, if I was riding my bike at 300 watts, then then that's the amount of external work. At the crank, I'm, I'm producing 300 watts of, of work. Um, but what we know when we, when we record the oxygen cost is that it's roughly, roughly four times um, more total energy expenditure than there is for external work, and that's why we we say humans have a, have efficiency of around twenty to twenty five percent. And so, when someone's um, riding riding along, if they were if they were um, riding, if we, so typically for to work out um, me- mechanical efficiency, we get them to ride for about about five hundred. Uh, sorry, about about five minutes um, at 100 watts or, or thereabouts. Um, yeah, not 500 watts. Um, and then if you, if you get into rider, whatever wattage it is, let's say five minutes, 100 watts, and, and then you're converting that to to a known amount of energy expenditure because one watt is is one joule per second. So we express it as watt because it's, it's easy to understand, but it but it's it's one joule per second. And so five minutes at 100 watts will give us will give us um, 30,000 joules, but we know that's external work, but but we actually expend more than that. And so, if we recorded oxygen consumption for that that whole time, so via via um, metabolic analysis, so we put a mask on the person and they're riding 
at that work rate, then we can see how much oxygen um, they expire in liters per minute. Um, and then by breaking that down and looking at the amount of carbon dioxide exhaled versus oxygen inhaled, that, that will tell us about A, how, how difficult that person is exercising. Um, if, they're, if they're closer to this ratio of one, it tells us they're burning more carbohydrates. And if they're closer to kind of 0 0.6, 0 0.7, they're burning more um, fatty acids. And so, so from that, we can then work out what's what's called an energetic equivalent, which is which is um, in, in kilo in kilocalories. And so, if a person was riding along at 100 watts, and they average 1.5 liters a minute VO2 for that whole time, th then for that five minutes they would have um, expired seven and a half liters of oxygen. And then if we said that their RER was roughly one, which it kind of, you know, practically it doesn't differ that much from 0.9 to 1. So, they're, they're burning predominantly carbohydrates. Um, then you'd say they're burning five, five kilocalories. And, and so, se 7.5 liters of oxygen times five kilocalories is, is 37.5 kilo, kilocalories. And then what we do is convert that, that to joules, which works out to 157,000 um, joules. And so, so, the point of it is, you have someone who's who's expending thirty thousand joules of mechanical work, and nearly one hundred and sixty thousand of metabolic work, and so that works out at, at roughly nineteen percent efficiency. And so that's what what we mean when we're talking about efficiency. It's it's how much total metabolic cost was required to perform that given external external work, and the reason there's a mismatch is because most of that external work um, is lost in heat. We, we, have, we have to cool the body. We have to sweat. We have to breathe at increased rates. Um, and so, efficiency becomes a much more complicated thing to measure, but it's also an easier thing to manipulate. Keep going down that path. What do you, what do you mean by that in terms of um, why it's so easy to manipulate? Well, I'm going to come back to running for for that that reason, and and running is running is a, a simpler sport, not not easier, certainly not easy, but it's a simpler sport to win than cycling, um, and the, especially distance running. And the, and the reason I say that is is because the interface is you, your shoe, and the ground. And and sure, we can differ performance a little bit whether you're in a the latest Alpha Fly or the you know Endorphin Pro Three versus a pair of Hocker Cliftons. Like you, you might have a little bit of, of, of wiggle room there and changing efficiency, but it's not a lot. Really what dictates your, your running ability is, is A, stride length and B, stride rate. Stride length, you can only stride so far because it's de determined by how long your limbs are. And if you break in front of the body, so if your heels strike in front of the body, you overstride, then, then that's actually driving you backwards. There's a the, the reaction forces behind you, so it slows you down. So, you can't stride too long and you also can't stride too fast because once you start to get, you know, above a certain rate, it's, it's practically impossible. And again, sure, you see, you see differences in that. You might have a, a really tall, lean um, runner that, that might be at 170 strides a minute and you might have someone at the opposite end of that spectrum like Charlotte Perdue who's at, you know, 200. 200 strides a minute but it's narrowly controlled and there's not a lot 
of wiggle room within that. There, there might be, you know, a, st- a stride length that you can go from one to one point four meters, and maybe you, you, your stride rate can or your, or your cadence can go from you know, one seventy to one ninety. But in cycling, there's there's so much more you can do about that. You have the ability to change gears from you know a thirty four inside ring to a to a fifty two outside ring to a, a back cog of of whatever it is twenty three down to ten or eleven. You have have all those gears you can manipulate. You have crank length which, which you can manipulate, which which um, might favour someone who can produce more torque. And then you have the aerodynamic consideration as well. And and in in running. Yes, aerodynamics matters to an extent, particularly if you're running into a headwind, but far less so than than in in cycling, um, because aerodynamics is that is that um, quadratic equation. So if I if I double my speed, then it becomes four times harder. But if I double that speed again, then it's actually sixteen times more effort. Um, and so the cost of moving at higher and higher speeds is greater and greater and greater. And so there's so much that goes into that mixture of of winning cycling and, and and we see that all the time if if you are on flat ground with a runner generally the runner that has the best economy and, and is the fittest will win and that's not not necessarily the case with cycling it's about you know who was able to push the biggest gear who was able to draft the best um, who was able to, t- to time their attack attack the best because once you break away from a rider they're having to chase into the into the wind as well so that you know they lose that advantage um and so there's a lot a lot more of those variables that go into the mix in in terms of determining cycling performance than there is so for 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 running performance and and some of those things that we we can manipulate okay so one of the things i want to pick up on ryan is the that we can't control that the body has to dissipate heat so, you know, a very general sentence would be, so if I was able to cope with heat in any conditions, would that make me, a, give me a better advantage to someone else who's not able to, to dissipate the, the accumulation of heat that, that's building up as you sweat, et cetera? Is, is that an area that we're, we're not really doing enough in? Yeah, I don't. I I, th- I think there's still a lot to be le- a lot left to be explored in, in heat tolerance, um, and pati- particularly heat acclimation. But yes, in in better in general, if you're better able to tolerate heat, then then you'll perform better, um, because you will not overheat and your sweat rate will will be lower, which means that you won't you know won't won't run the risk of dehydration as as well. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that you're you're going to have less less metabolic drift and so what i mean by metabolic drift is is for a given work rate over time if 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 you run at five minute k pace and and you're continually continually running at that pace over time even though pace stays exactly the same on level ground your heart rate and oxygen consumption will still keep going up and up and up and in heat that's that's amplified many times and so so the ability to tolerate that heat will certainly be advantageous um, and a great practical example of that is is Paula Radcliffe um, she for a long time had the um, had the women's world world marathon um, record before that was um, recently taken off her in 2019 in the in the super shoe era um, but she was notoriously poor performer in the heat 
You know, she she would be able to run a, a 218, 219 performance in, in London and then you, you chucked her in a, on a warm circuit and, and she might drift out to, you know, 225, 230. Um, and, and so, her, her ability to tolerate that heat being from that Caucasian background was much poorer. What is the utilization of measuring it and then, yeah, how do we go about improving it? I mean, the the, the purpose of, of measuring it, I mean, it's the purpose of all testing. Why, why do you test? To know where you are and to know if when you train, you've improved or not. And, and I mean, I don't, I don't think enough athletes test enough in general across all, all types of tests. Um, we agree. But in, in general, you know, there are things we do really well, particularly in cycling, like, like critical power and functional threshold power. We tend to, tend to do a pretty good job um, of recording. But things like VO2 max, lact, lactate inflection point, less so. And things like economy, really not at all, which I find a little bit bizarre. And particularly in, in running, like like I said, there are many more variables that can determine cycling success than there are, are in running. And and be, beyond the half or even beyond the 10K, um, the importance of VO2, so the ability to uptake and utilize oxygen at maximal work rates is less and less important. And what becomes critically important is how can you move at increasing or, or, or at fast work rates, high, high um, paces and consume the le- least oxygen available or the, um, who, who can consume the least oxygen for, for a, given, a given pace and that person will ult- ultimately win. If we're, if we're, you know, if you and I, Jordan, both have a VO2 max of, of 85 and we're both running at, you know, four-minute K pace, and, and and you're you're only using half of that total amount to move at that pace, and I'm moving. I'm using seventy-five percent of my oxygen uptake to move at that pace. Then my wiggle room is much less. You know, we know that people can only operate at about 85 percent VO two max for for a marathon, and so so I, I I might only be able to kick down to three fifty-five. You know, but if you're if you're sitting at forty-five fifty percent, then then maybe you can you know kick down to to three fifteen pace. And so, what we really want to do is, is identify what someone's economy is and, it, and it's actually quite easy to test and, and it, all it involves is um, running on a, on a treadmill at a given work rate, which is usually a, a, about the, the same um, pace as your kind of half marathon pace or what we call ventilatory threshold one, which occurs about the same time as lactate threshold. So, it's about that last aerobic point. So, th- think about it as kind of your hour power. Um, and we record economy at, at that pace and, and we see see what it is and see whether it's, you know, you know, are, are you having average economy of a, of a Caucasian athlete around 200, 220 mils per kilo per kilometer or is it exceptional economy, you know, right down at the kind of East African athletes down at the 180 mils per kilo per kilometer. But the point is, even once you get that, you then need to think about ways in which you can optimize that economy because because just knowing it's you know it's not enough and i and i think about this with vo2 all the time athletes come in and we'll do a vo2 test and they'll score whatever they do 68 and great it's it's a nice number to have but but so what? Like, what, what is it? What does it mean? How does it influence your training? How does it influence your recovery? The your your race strategy? Um, 
And so, you have to understand why you're testing that, that economy. Um, and for me, there's, there's, in running especially, there's two reasons. One is shoes. There's, there are so many shoes out on the market at the moment. So, you could, you know, you could be having what's widely considered the most economical and kind of the alpha fly, you know, next percent or maybe even the vapor fly. But take your t- take your pick. You know, is it the the New Balance, um, the um, RC Elite, or or is it the Saucony and the six Pro? meter speed? Yeah, yep. Our six meter speed. Yeah, um, and, and there's so many of them that that claim to to be more economical, but the reality is that it there's so much that depends on the runner, and f- for me, I've 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 have the ability to to test all of that. Um, and I have done so. I've, I've looked at, you know, what's my economy in, in, in the Saucony Endorphin Pro, the Endorphin Speed, the Alpha Fly, the Vapor Fly. Um, and the New Balance were the most economical for me, more so, more so than, than the ASICs or anything. And so for me to just say, you know, okay, well, the Alpha Flies are the most economical was wrong. And not only are they the, were they the, they're actually the third most economical shoe for me, but they also, my rate of perceived exertion was higher in those. So, generally, we know that the shoe that is um, gives you the lowest rate of perceived exertion, sorry, rating of perceived exertion, so how hard you're going out of 10 usually, correlates really well with, with economy. So, so, you know, essentially what feels the easiest often, often is the easiest. Um, and for me, it was was definitely not the Alpha Fly. But the other thing you can do is kind of the intervention. You, you look at what what can you manipulate in terms of your training to improve your running economy. And I I don't think there's a whole lot of point in manipulating any of those things unless you first know what your economy is. Otherwise, it's a moving target, and you yeah, you might yeah. be doing something that wastes your time. Mm. Yeah. I have a few questions on that. First one is, was your feeling accurate to the results? So, did you feel like the New Balance was easier or you couldn't tell the difference between the three um, before the test? Um, or the, I've never run in a shoe more comfortable than the New Balance. Um, I think they're, they're extremely soft and extremely forgiving shoe. Um, and so, I mean, that, that perceived comfort was already there. And I'm not that surprised that they um, that they were the most economical for me. However, that said, and this this is about coming into what makes the you know what makes a, a performance you know a, a winning one. I I would never choose that shoe for a five or a ten k race. I, I would have the vapor fly on my foot every day of the week because it gives me back more spring for every step. And and I know that as well because I've tested that and I'll see that. You know, my stride length um, and con- is less, and my my contact time is less when I'm using the Vaporfly at race pace than any other shoe. Which means that if my contact time is less and my stride length is shorter, it means that when I stride out, I'm actually going faster than I am in any other shoe. And so, so understanding how all of these things relate is really, really critical. But but one of the the great challenges with with economy is that when we test economy, I'm testing it for you on one kilometer in a relatively um, tight set of conditions. But 
there is no guarantee that that your body is going to respond the same way at kilometer 30 in a marathon when your hips start to drop and you're you're feeling fatigued and you're dehydrated and and so it becomes really important to not only test the economy in a variety of conditions but also use your own metrics in training to help derive that if if you know you're on a on a sunday run and and you're 30 kilometers deep you know you're training for the the melbourne marathon let's say and you know you're running in your you're running in your asics you know your your your, your asics metaspeed sky let's say on one week and you're going at, at five minute k pace and your heart rate is one 142 beats per minute um, and your your power maybe maybe you've got a stride power meter or, or a chorus or a garment or something you know, maybe your power is 270 watts and then the next week you come and you do so your training's been relatively similar you've had the same thing for breakfast relatively similar weather conditions etc so it's somewhat repeatable and you're running at the same place at the same time of day and the only thing that's changed is the shoe and you've put on you know, you've you've put on the latest Adidas, and all of a sudden your heart rate's gone to 162, and your power's gone to 300 watts for the given pace, the same pace. Then that represents a decline. You're having to work harder. You're having to produce more more power and a, and a higher heart rate for a given pace. And so that represents kind of a, a field reflection of of economy, if you will. Sure, it's not as accurate as as a lab, but you know, you, you can't take that. You can't just stop and hop on a treadmill at 30k and, and have your VO2 tested either. This comes back to your original point where you spoke about uh, implementation at the start of the, this podcast, because and we spoke about this previously uh, in one of our conversations, where uh, you know what happens in the lab isn't doesn't always equate to what's happening in the field, and and that is a limitation of sports science and and something you have to consider. And that is just such a perfect example, and it's it's so hard to test because how are you going to put someone in controlled repeatable conditions and of how they're going to feel at kilometer 30 like you said i mean that's your example you gave is the best case scenario but it's still there's still so many variables in that and even the, the week later you might stuff up the execution you might go out in the first 20k harder than you did the week before i know you said you're running at five minute k pace but um, maybe you've you've stuffed it up and you've actually done a couple of k's at 450 and that that's impacted the results of the test um so i, yeah, I wanted to yeah, ask of course um, how did you? How, what was the method you used for figuring out that the um, you balance? What's the specific method of testing? Are you running a kilometer at that half marathon pace, and then what's the method of testing for the five and ten k paces? It's just running your your goal five and ten k pace. Um, well, I mean, economy is almost always um, recorded at, at around that um, ventilatory threshold, which is which occurs around somewhere around um, around that half marathon pace. Um, and and that's where I recorded the economy for for the shoes that I had. So I had a a, a counterbalanced design. So I, I took the the shoes I was going to going to run in. There was eight different pairs, and seven of them which were um, kind of performance shoes. So they had some sort of super foam, a Pbax or a Zoomax type foam, compared to a control shoe. Um, and then I ran them in 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 an order and then I came back later in the week and, and reversed that order and did it again. So, to to kind of average that out. Um, but you as ran, I you said- You ran a K I, in each at that, at that pace? Yeah, one kilometer in each. Yeah. 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 And, and then made sure I had, a, I had five minutes of, um, of passive rest time between that. 
and what, as I was saying earlier, one of one of the the important considerations though is that the the faster you go, so down kind of below ten k performance, the less important economy is, and it, it's more about who can, who has a higher VO two max and and the ability to um, produce more power. Um, and so I think economies, I, I personally probably wouldn't bother te- tr- testing it if you were a five and ten k athlete. I think there would be more fruitful things you can measure like VO2 max. But certainly for athletes running half marathon to marathon and or triathletes who are, you know, maybe maybe if, you, if, if you're only doing a, a half Ironman, sure, you're only running a half marathon, but you're running it off the back of a 90K ride, you know, and, and, a, and a 1.8 swim as well. Like, you know, so you have to be able to, to do that, I guess. Um, so Ryan, what were the what was the variance in results between the shoes? How big was the percentage of difference in economy? Yeah, well, I, for for me, the the um, New Balance, um, I always forget the name of them. The um, RC Elite V two. I'll tell you what, on a, on a sideways rant. Whoever's doing New Balance marketing, give your shoes some great names like the Endorphin or the Invincible yeah. or the Alpha Flight. Don't don't just call them 1080 V12 or something. Anyway, if you listen to New Balance, um, so they they were they improved my efficiency by about three percent. The Alpha Flies by about two percent, um, and the Vapor Flies by about one and a half percent. But and what was the what, control shoe like? Um, the Nike Infinity React, um, if you know that one. Um, so, it's just their kind of React foam. Um, but I also ran in some um, Saucony Endorphin Speeds um, and the Nike Invincibles. Now, I know the Invincibles are a bit of a heavy issue, but they use that ZoomX foam or Piba, Piba, p foam, which is all, all the same type. It all comes out of the same few factories. Um and the same with the Saucony Endorphin Speed, which has a, a, a nylon plate as well. But when I compared all of those shoes against the carbon-plated shoes, all of the carbon-plated shoes, irrespective of the, of the brand, improved my economy, economy by at least 1%. Um, so, for me, having a carbon plate did improve economy um, and then new, new Balance were the most economical for me. But... To, to go a bit more on this on the kind of of the science of it, economy is so complex, and there, and there's things we know that that affect economy that we can't control. Um, for instance, pelvis width, um, height, length of limbs, um, amount of mass at your calves. So having having like much lighter calves, which is very common and common of the kind of um, Ethiopian Kenyan athletes. Um, Having longer legs in in response in proportion with your torso, for instance, Th- those things greatly improve economy. But again, there are so what you know. You, if if you're dealing with a triathlete that has bigger calves, then you you can't say, hey, why don't you go down to your local plastic surgeon and get rid of your calf taken off to improve your economy, <laughs> you know? And and so they're the kind of things we can't change. But but what we can change is our is our overall body mass. So, m- mass, the, the more mass you carry, the worse your economy will be. Now, now, you can't just say I need to get as light as I can because ultimately if you you know keep keep reducing weight and ca- calories, you're going to run into some sort of relative, relative energy deficiency syndrome problems. Um, but also like be- 
excess weight very, very negatively affects economy. And we, we know that 100 gram at the feet, so 50 grams on each foot, reduces running economy by about 1%. So, so lighter shoes are more economical as are comfortable shoes. Um, and for every kilo of excess body mass, it adds about two to three seconds, depending on the study you look at, um, to threshold pace. So, so if your threshold pace is, um, is whatever it is, three thirty, and, and you add two kilos, then then that's becoming three thirty six, three thirty four to three thirty six, and and so weight weight is very very detrimental to running economy. Likewise, though, we can improve our our training. So, that, so training w- will positively improve running economy. I'm struggling to understand what's actually happening in the shoe and why different shoes are creating different economical um, outputs for you. So, why the Alphafly wasn't as economical for you as it would be for someone else. Yeah. Well, so, so it's all to do with that, that interface. And, and this is one of the great, um, great challenges in terms of economy and, and, and understanding around economy and sports science at the moment. So, that um, original 4% shoe, which is where that number comes from, an improved economy on average by 4%. But in some people, it improved. That was the average. So, so the range was eight. So, for some people, their economy hardly changed. So, less than a percent. Other people improved by eight percent. Now, if you were to take two runners and you said to to one runner, "We can give you an Alpha Fly, and you you might get half a percent better, but the guy next to you is going to get eight percent better," then then I think that really affects results and running in a way that I don't think is very fair. It no longer becomes about, about um, you know, brute physiology. It's about who adapts the best to, to a particular running shoe. And the reason people react differently is because everyone's running technique is different. So, everyone will strike in a different spot. They might be a forefoot or a midfoot or a heel, heel striker. They might have a different rate of pronation. They might have a different um, kind of toe-in, toe-out toe angle. Maybe they, they um, their center of mass is in a, in a different spot to some, someone else when they um, – when they strike the ground, I'm sure, as you know, you know, if you run in a, in a shoe with a, a four mil offset like like a, a hocker, it feels very different to a you know a Nike with it with a with a nine mil mil drop, um, and so all of those things go into making making someone's technique, and likewise, they go into affecting someone's someone's economy, and so there is no one right super shoe for you, and the the bad part about that advice is, you know, most people can't afford to just go and buy the top 10 super shoes and, and, and try Test them. them. <laughs> yeah. And, and with that advice, I would say if you are lucky enough to go into certain running shops, the, the running company is a great example of this. And, you know, you know already that you that you tend to like a shoe. Let's say you, you, you respond really well to, to old school flat style races and you say, okay, well, that you know, I'm going to go for an Alpha Fly because it's got four mil drop, as as opposed to a Vapor Fly which has eight mil drop. You know, and, and then maybe you try both of those on, and 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 while you're running, you, you're having your own live rating of perceived comfort. Which one feels more comfortable? If you can wear a heart rate monitor and run for a couple of minutes, look at your watch. Which one? Which ones? Which ones? Um, 
reducing your heart rate for for a given pace. Um, and I realize that's that's not always always easy to do. Um, but I guess the flip side of that is, you know, if, if you are serious about your sport, you know, maybe maybe you do you do buy a couple of of, of different shoes and and see what what is going to help you perform the most. Um, but that, that that's the reason why there's so much variance in, in in all of those shoes because each shoe will have have a different weight. It will have a different amount of foam. It will have the 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 plate higher or lower in the shoe. Maybe it's got a narrower plate. Maybe it's got a like that. The Adidas has a you know a three three rod system rather than a, than a whole whole plate. And so that interaction of all of those things will make it right for some people but not others. But but in general, in general, what the the things that are true, more more padded shoes, so shoes with more foam, tend to be more economical, and they p- increase perceived comfort. So having a shoe that you know takes it right up to that um, world athletics limit. Now I think it's what is it thirty nine mil, thirty yes, mil. Yeah, something something around there. I thought it was thirty. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, maybe it's thirty mil. Um, taking it up to that kind of max maximum. And getting the lighter shoe that you can that that fits within that range, um, and, and then trying for perceived comfort is is probably the best way to go about it. Just on that, so just for the the average person who has got the advice that, well, not the advice, the information now that there are certain shoes that have more value to performance than other shoes, and your particular action as a runner is going to prevent you from being in the 8% and put you more in the half a percent improvement be- totally because of your running style. Would you be advocating to anybody out there that they should consider, even though they might have been running for 10 years, changing something about their actual running style to enable the running shoe to get more value in economy for them? Is that something that you would consider or even suggest or is that just a waste of time. And how would you even go about that? Yeah, the answer is a, a really complex one. And and what what we know is that when we try to manipulate are you technique saying, are in you running, it, it, that it depends. Is that an answer? Yeah, that I know that's, that's <laughs> the It depends. I'll try and come back to some practical advice. Um, <laughs> when we change technique in in cycling and and running, um, it decreases efficiency acutely and, and there's been many many studies on this i mean perhaps the most most famous one in running was the the, the pose running technique which is kind of where you um, hold, hold yourself in a proud upright posture and the idea was that it would would reduce running economy um, sorry improve running economy and it actually it didn't reduce running economy so by people changing their technique there was an um, increased amount of, of neuromuscular control required to run in that certain way so you're recruiting different muscles which meant that there is a cost associated with that oxygen consumption increased um and the same is true for cycling when when you take um cyclists and and instruct them to pedal in another way whether you say i want you to to pedal in a circular technique or or, um you know, you'll hear something like scrape the mud off the bottom of your shoe when you're coming through the bottom of the stroke or pull up through the upstroke um and or when you get people to um, ride with biofeedback so they can see live where they're producing force or, or on what's called independent cranks where there's a clutch between the cranks, so left and right are independent of the other. So you have to pull through on the upstroke. 
all of those things reduce economy acutely. And so the thing that he, that is the most economical is preferred technique. Now, where the trick comes into that is in the studies. So if if I was to get you to run in a different way and assess your economy, I am absolutely certain that your economy would be decreased because you become really good at what you do. And if you had an athlete that was a heel striker out in front of their body, but they've been running that way for 10 years, then as soon as you got them to, to strike underneath their center of mass, their economy would decrease. And, and it's because they've got so economical at running the way they they always have. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that it's the the right way to run. Um, and then there might be some gains to be had um, by improving their technique. Um, and so, there, there are very few longitudinal studies that, that look at um, technique and interventions over over time, um, but there are there are a couple, and they they do show small changes in economy. In terms of technique, there are a kind of non-negotiables, I guess. So, first up, I, I think pursuing a better running economy at low speeds probably doesn't matter. Same for cycling. I mean, if if you know, if, if Jared and I are riding together at 100 watts and he's more economical than me, so what? We can both ride together at 100 watts for eight hours. It, does, it doesn't matter. What matters is when we're both going at 300, 350 watts um, and, and, and likewise for running. So, I think, I think my advice would be try to, try to implement changes to technique at pace. And again, coming back to running is a great example of that. One of the things that's most correlated to, to running economy is, is what's um, called the radius of gyration or the moment of inertia, which ba- basically means um, when, let's say, my right foot was striking the ground, how close my right, my left um, heel and ankle are coming to to, to um, flicking me in into the butt cheek. So whether you whether you're kind of carrying through that 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 opposite leg, which you you see that all the time in 800 and 1500 meter runners, they got that really high turnover, and their and their their angular range of their foot, it's their their heels right up near their glute. And so what that means is is they have a shorter lever that they're swinging swinging through on the opposing leg, and if that lever's shorter, then it requires less torque to move it through that range. And if there's less torque, then there's less muscle recruited, which means it's it's easier to do. There's less o- oxygen required to do so. And and so having improvement in yeah, what I call the non-negotiables is really critical. And and they are if you're running at pace, you don't want to be heel striking in front of you. That's that's a definite no-no. You you don't want to have large pelvic drop on each side or, or not be running in a straight line. So, if your pelvis is, is dropping side to side, then you probably need to look at, at strengthening your, your glutes. Um, and if you cannot adopt a good range where your heel comes through quite high and, and you're shuffling, you know, the Cliff Young shuffle, then that that also is, is not advantageous. Um, but related to that, are the other things you can do to improve economy, um, which principally are is strength training. Strength, strength training is perhaps the most important thing you could do to Im- improve economy. 
why is that? Is it because it's imp- increasing your range of motion or, and you just spoke about the range, is that a flexibility thing, a strength thing? What's, what is that? Yeah, strength is, is uh, flexibility is so, and its relationship with economy is really confusing. And so, in general, if you lack flexibility in the hip and knee, then you won't be able to achieve those ranges that will give you good economy. But if you have too much flexibility and you kind of get bogged down in your stroke or your hips aren't stable, then you're having to recruit additional muscle um, to be to, to stabilize you, to, to be economical. And so, in, in, in general, people that are less flexible tend to have better running economy. But the caveat is they're, they're less flexible laterally. So, maybe their glute meads are quite tight. The other thing that's much, much more important is having um, great ankle stiffness. And that's arguably the most important thing. So, every time we hit, hit the ground... Um, or just before we hit the ground, actually, there's a, there's a, a pre-activation of muscles where your muscles will act, activate really slightly and then you'll contact the ground and, and you'll get what's called this, this stretch reflex mechanism, which is, which is really a safety mechanism. It's where our muscles contract quite, quite rapidly um, to prevent them from overstretching and getting damaged. It's kind of the whole premise of, of plyometric training. Now, related to that, is musculotendinous stiffness. And so, if you have a really stiff tendon, then your energy is um, your energy return is, is much greater. And a great practical example of that from the animal kingdom is, is the kangaroo. You look at, you look at their foot and, and their um, leg, they have this en- enormous tendon, which allows them to have incredible en- energy store um, and release, and so they can hop along at seventy kilometers an hour with, with with hardly any energy expense. Now, in humans, we don't, of course, we don't have an Achilles tendon that long. Interestingly, um, Kenyan and Ethiopian athletes have longer tendons than Caucasian athletes, and they also have lower rotating mats. So they're 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 getting more from every every step they they put into the ground. But we can manipulate our our tendon stiffness quite easily. And and the best way to do that is through strength training and, and plyometric training. And, and for strength training, I'm talking about kind of heavier strength training, like three, three to five repetitions. Um, that'll improve improve neuromuscular efficiency, so the, the signal to the muscle, but also some form of power training, so plyometric training, t- trying to um, minimize ground contact time, so lots of repeated jumping maneuvers. Um, to maximize muscular tenderness stiffness. What you've just said is pretty mind-blowing. I don't know. What you, yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot there, isn't there, Dad, that um, kind of opens up a whole new world of training for athletes that a lot of endurance athletes would not touch. Interesting too, George. Look, from what you were saying, Ryan, I, I totally agree with uh, my observations that, um, of looking at different styles of running styles over the journey. And I've always been intrigued as to why the older athlete no matter how good they were as a younger athlete, end up shuffling. Um, and and I've always wondered whether had we keep keep that type of training where you're doing that plyometrics where eccentric, concentric contraction, really rapid, rapid sort of style of exercising, skipping, uh, jumping up on boxes, um, landing, you know, and and recoiling 
type of exercises where we keep the strength in our tendons so that we do have that good flexibility uh, or not flexibility, that good power to, to propel ourselves forward, which is what we're trying to do. And I look at photos and I just remember photos that um, my parents showed me when I was you know, doing under nine little laths and my running style, my heel is in contact with my glute and I remember um, my, my heel hitting my glute a lot when I was running fast and thinking this is a really weird I must be really weird at, at running because you know it it my my legs would hit and also um, they would hit on the way past each other and and you know when I look at some of the really good little little kid runners they have this great uh, style that we lose and they're, they're really fast when they're really little and then they progressively get slower because their body tends to tighten up or something happens where we don't practice that freedom we had as an 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old. You look at some of the video footage of little kids running around the park, they've got brilliant styles, great economy. It's not costing them anything in energy or effort. Yet as we get older, our, our economy is horrible and it's, it's taxing to us and it's a, it becomes a shuffle. Yeah, I, th- I think there's probably some... some um some cultural parts to that as well like like i know a lot of a lot of athletes i've worked with and a lot of the runners i talk to as they've got older there's this natural evolution toward running half and full marathons even if they used to be eight and 1500 runners on the track um and i think i think inherent with that is if you're going to be running long distances there's a lot more low volume slower pace training and and that doesn't reinforce that technique we were just talking about and and so the the importance of having a, a wide base of training incorporating you know lots of short sharp efforts a, and drills um becomes becomes quite important i would think what about um coming back to those two factors you talked about with contact time of the ground uh but more specifically stride length and stride rate is it worth trying to manipulate them in a certain direction to improve yourself or is it a case of individually, you know, 170 revolutions per minute cadence wise is, is better for me, but it wouldn't be better for you. You'd be better at 160 or 180. Um, I would not bother changing it as, as long as you're not um, breaking out in front of the body. So, so if, if your stride length was 140, sorry, your stride rate was 140 and your stride length was 1.4, meters and you are 168 centimeters tall then yeah i think that's a real problem because you're probably taking giant steps and heel striking out in front of you but if you're in those kind of normal parameters so 160 to 180 um, stride rate and somewhere between 1 to 1.3 meters stride length at pace height dependent of course um, then i wouldn't i wouldn't bother with that and it's Again, coming to cycling, cycling is really interesting that like the studies on cadence um, and crank length, it hardly changes efficiency. So, so if you if you get someone to cycle, whether they change, ride from 70 to 110, doesn't change their gross efficiency. You know, if you, if you put them on, on cadence, oh, on cranks from 100, 145 up to 205, won't change their gross efficiency. Um, now, it will change aspects related to that. So... You know, if you if you put someone on a longer, um, longer crank, for instance, then they're it's it's a longer lever. They produce more torque, so muscular force has to go up. But simultaneously, the rate of contraction goes down. Um, 
and so there's this kind of kind of trade off and so what what you see is is and it's a really frustrating answer to, to give as, as someone that deals in this space but the the best cadence um, in both cycling and running is is what we call freely chosen cadence what people um, tend to adapt to and, and again there's the studies on this in cycling the cadence that represents the most comfortable for a given workload is the most economical. Yeah, it's it's a it's another interesting one, and I've certainly experimented with crank length and cadence, and and the only method that I can measure it against is how does it affect my average speed on a bike and and my perceived feel of effort, and maybe looking at my heart rate variation, mm. and definitely from coaching many thousands of athletes, if I give them a certain five-minute effort at 300 watts, if I asked them to do it at 95 RPM compared to 70, there would be a completely different heart rate response. Um, it would be lower. Yeah, at, at yeah, 70. but, the, but the, the, the point is, I guess, that, that each, each of those athletes will have their set point, their, their freely chosen cadence. So, if, if you took the athlete that was at 300 watts at, at 90, and then made them ride at seventy. Then, then that's foreign to them. But if you took the the six foot two guy that used to play rugby, who naturally mashes around at 60, 70 RPM, and said, "All right, you're going to ride at hundred now," I mean, it's he's going to be pedaling in squares and not not be able to to do that. And so every every person will have that that kind of cadence that um, that is is best for them. And what we know from from cycling. Um, in terms of in terms of pedaling technique now, like again, all the, all the pedaling technique interventions where you tell people to pull up through the upstroke or, or down the bottom t- tends tends to reduce economy. Um, what what's better is to try to get people to produce more force during the downstroke um, and longer application of force during the downstroke. And there's a couple of papers in the last decade that have that have shown that strength training allows people to produce peg torque earlier in the downstroke, meaning that they can produce it longer in the downstroke. And so, in terms of cycling technique, I would tell someone, try and focus on your pushing down and, and don't really worry about any, anything else um, because pulling up, when you do pull up through that, that pedal stroke, you're recruiting really small muscles, hip, hip flexor muscles that are, that are quite weak in comparison to, to your glute and knee extensor muscles. Um, and so that will will reduce the economy, um, and s- s- like I said, there's so much that goes into that mix of of winning cycling in terms of gears, in terms of crank lengths, um, all of those things. And now I said that crank length doesn't really affect economy, and and it doesn't on average. But there's always that that it depends that we were joking about earlier. You know, I mean, we in the past Australia's greatest ever. Well, no longer greatest ever. One of our greatest tracks track sprint cyclists, um, Shane Perkins, was he was struggling to break the ten second barrier um, on one hundred and sixty five mil cranks, and then at, at the time, the sports science advisor at that at the VOS put him onto one hundred and sixty seven point five millimeter cranks, and he went under ten seconds, first time ever, and now two and a half mil difference. You know that according to academic papers, shouldn't make 
make any difference. But but clearly it did. Something about that longer lever length may may have worked well with his force profile. You know, he's an incredibly strong athlete rather than a velocity um, dominant athlete. So he's able to produce more force on that longer crank. Um, and, and I guess it comes back to that what we we're saying earlier. Like a large part of this in terms of technique and economy and efficiency really is ex- experimentation and, and not only not only data collection in the lab but if you can if you can record a lot of that data in your own training which cyclists i mean i, I can't think of a, a sport that's more data friendly than cycling when I mean, we have power cadence heart heart rate speed um torque effectiveness you know all of these things um and running to a lesser extent, um, but you've still got heart rate, pace, cadence, those sort of things. Like tinker with the variables and see what works for you, you know, and, and have some ownership in your training. Like you guys pr- promoting promoting programs is great. And, and I'm sure what you do is 99 times out of 100, right? But one time out of a hundred, it might not be right, and and it's up for the athlete to go. You know what? I you know I, I think this might be a worthwhile intervention for me, or maybe I should try this shoe, or or whatever it is. And you know, it, it, I guess yeah, have some ownership in 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 the training as well. I, I think the guidance that you get from from uh, the data is really helpful, and I love the fact that you started off by really trying to get the message across that. That what happens in reality doesn't always necessarily match up with what's tested in the lab, and the lab testing is good for for the general person, but there's so many variables in that. And what happens out in the field is kind of more accurate um, for individuals. And and you know, just the example I suppose we were talking about five minutes ago was um, pedaling efficiency, pedaling technique, uh, pedaling circles. And I know for a fact that if if I'm going to just be a quad dominant pedaler as an endurance rider that's going to ride 180k Ironman, I am going to run terribly. I need yeah, to be able to yeah. spread my load across the hamstrings, the glutes, the hip flexors, the quads, not just rely on my quad dominance. Even though the lab's testing me and saying that that is the most efficient way and an economical way, but you know, field testing tells me that's actually not going to be very helpful to be able to run in a triathlon. Um, and right, and, and that comes back to that one of those earlier points that we said that some sometimes sometimes sport and coaching is ahead of science, and that's a great example. And another great example of that is is the new world of gravel racing. I mean, our, our mutual mutual um, athlete that we that we both um, you well, you coach him and I help with his testing. Nick, you know, just came back from from a was it three hundred k gravel race in the states. Sure, if I say that you know pushing down in the in the you know in the drive phase of the pedal stroke increases his performance, that's great. All the studies say that, but no study goes more than forty k time trial, you know, and that's not even a fifth of the race. Like, so it's not so relevant, and 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 so so sometimes it it really does take the athlete to kind of have that that ownership and the coach as well to go. You know, my gut feeling tells me otherwise. Um, and use what's at hand. Use the, use the data that's that's at hand to help inform that that training. Um, but understand that it's not the be all and end all as well. I, I see so many athletes get sucked into data, and a, a great example is, is, is FTP. FTP is okay. It's not it's not a perfect metric. It it 
it shouldn't be taken as a perfect metric and as a sole thing. You've got to use it with other things. But but it is still useful. But but I've worked with athletes in the past that will say, well, you know, I'm going to go out for my um, 40K time trial at, at Road Nationals at an intensity factor of, of 1 or 1.05. And I'm like, y- you shouldn't be worrying about an intensity factor based on an FTP we took three months ago. Like you're in a race situation there has there has to be more to your data than that you yeah sure that data is important and you know if you're going out out you know if your ftp is three three fifty and you've got a forty k time trial and for the first five you've averaged three sixty uh, sorry four hundred watts then then yeah you you're probably gonna have a bad day you know because you've gone out out too hard but but inherent in, in that is also understanding that that data is is a guide, but you have to have some intuition. You have to understand what feels right. You know, what what do I feel like I can go harder? Do I feel like I can sustain this? Because to me, if an athlete at, at an event like a national time trial comes out and rides their FTP, then I, I would think that's a failure. I would think I had failed as a coach that they hadn't improved that on a race day. And when we've trained to improve that, we've had, you know, a taper, we've had strength training, we've, we've had all of these things. Um, and, and, and so, so just having that data there and always trying to chase that number is not necessarily the, the best thing. There has to be some, some intuition to it as well. I want to close this economy loop um, and uh, trying to finish off with um, some uh, a summary of the practical advice you've spoken about. So you spoke about in terms of running and cycling, one of the biggest things that can help economy is strength strength training. Um, as a runner, being able to increase that range of motion, um, not not striking the heel at a higher pace, although that wouldn't matter as much for half Ironman and Ironman athletes, I'm going to guess. But can you finish off with um, some practical application of you know, how to go about improving your economy, cycling or running? Yeah. Okay. So we'll go running first. Like the the carbon shoes work. That's that's simple. If you can get into a carbon plated super foam runner, um, you, you're going to run better. It, it, in general, if you even if you can't get into that, a lighter shoe is better. In, in terms of weight, if you are carrying some extra weight. It doesn't matter if you have a $16,000 Pinarello. If you're carrying 15 kilos too much, then that's going to impact your performance and economy more than your bike will. So, excess weight is is the single um, greatest detriment to economy. Um, in terms of running, if, you, if you're striking well outside the center of the mass, so your heel's striking a long way in front of your body, then that's going to reduce your economy. If your hips are dropping wildly side to side, likewise, that's going to be reducing your economy. And if at high paces, not so much recovery and base runs, but if at high paces you're shuffling, then you're having to move a, long, a longer lever through that range of range of motion, which will also decrease your economy. Um, also, from a supplement perspective, um, caffeine. It's, it's great. Caffeine virtually enhances every element of, of sports performance there is. Um, economy is, is one of them. Um, in terms of cycling, this becomes a, a little more um, complicated, but but freely chosen cadence tends, seems to be best. What, what you choose 
as an optimal cadence for you is is probably the best cadence for you. Um, within reason, I would think if it's outside maybe that seventy to one hundred, then then you could probably look for some some interventions. Um, trying to manipulate pedaling technique is not is not necessarily an advantageous thing for um, for economy. Bike fit, which we haven't even touched on, definitely definitely affects economy and efficiency. So we know that if your seat height is too high or too low, especially if it's too high, then it's it's going to greatly reduce economy. Um, like, likewise, if the fore and aft position is wrong, so if you're too far forward on the seat, um, then it's then it's more likely to place an emphasis on quad muscle recruitment, quad dominance, which will reduce reduce economy as well. But the biggest thing for economy in cycling is is aerodynamic drag. Not so much in the lab because you're not overcoming aerodynamic drag, but if you can reduce that aerodynamic drag, then that's going to improve um, how easy it is to move through the wind, which means that there's less oxygen cost because there's less muscle recruitment. Now, aerodynamics is a complex can of worms, but but again, in general, if you can be um, narrower than wider, lower than higher, um, and wear aerodynamic equipment, so so a, a teardrop helmet if you're in um, time trial or triathlon events, um, and an aero frame, then then you're you're at an advantage at, at the rider that doesn't do those things. Um, same for aero bars. Um, and the last thing for for both, strength training is so important. Like I, I gave a, a presentation for cycling australia or old cycling australia now at the start of the year on, on strength training and it it is so overwhelming the positive effects of strength training on economy and performance and not only is economy improved but but time trials of every duration so sprints from 5 second up to up to time trials on the bike of 180 minutes are all positively improved by strength training um, if you're not doing it you should be doing it. Brian, that's a brilliant way to finish. I hate to finish here, but we have been going for an hour 20. We really focused on economy today and two other areas. We have spoken a little bit about efficiency, but I'd love to do a part two on efficiency and really dive deeper into that um, if you think that's applicable. And then I'd love to do a part three on strength training. So, yeah, I think we'll be getting you back on and, um, yeah, some some unbelievable gold nuggets over an hour 20. And it's they're quite in-depth conversations. And when this is all new, uh, especially a lot of this would be new to a lot of listeners who don't come from a sports science background, it is hard to grasp. But uh, you just really, I guess the summary is really highlighting uh, there are areas where you can get more out of yourself Um and just understanding that helps you just explore your own training a little bit more and your own body a little bit more. Is that is that what kind of the message you'd like to get across? Yeah. Well, and and as we as we said at the start, it's about optimization, and and you know it's it's optimizing all of those things: tech, technique and training, and comfort and and perception and data and and feel and, and all of those things together. And to come back to the cycling efficiency as opposed to economy, you know, where economies oxygen costs for a given pace efficiency is about how much external work you perform versus the oxygen cost and and so there's there's so much in that interface that that dictates external work is it is it your cadence is it your crank length is it your pedaling technique um and because there's so much that goes into that mix that the the best thing you can do as as an athlete 
is to look at the data, look at the information that's that's available online from from good sources like um, scientific journals. You know, if you if you type in any, go to Google Scholar, which is where you where you'll find a lot of that information. And type in running economy, type in cycling efficiency, um, and, and become your own science experiment. I guess within the within the bounds of your your coach and the people that are that are working with you. And please don't go down any shady avenues. Um, but you know, as I said earlier, you have to you have to be a, 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 as much a, a pilot of of your training as and accountable for your training as as anyone. Fantastic! Uh, really loved. Uh, yeah, the the topics that we've touched on, and unfortunately, uh, there's so much in there that we could, as we said before we started, we could talk all afternoon. But but I I really appreciate you giving your time and your insight, and um, you, you've you've got a practical side and and the, the lab side which I really love, and you've you've tried it on yourself. Exactly what you're telling every athlete out there who's listening to do, you've actually done that to yourself, which is which is what I love about um, you know it's great having theory, but it doesn't work in practice and. And this is something that we're getting some really good good information from you. And uh, we really appreciate you coming on and giving us your time. So really awesome, Ryan. Thank you very much. No worries. Great great for, um, to be on here. Thank you for organizing it. And who knows, Ryan, maybe you've just started a potential own um, own uh, business idea where you can stock up on every size of super shoe from 8 to 12 <laughs> and then get people in and, and do the economy test. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Maybe I could just try them all on myself, see if I can... <laughs> To get that elusive two-hour marathon barrier myself, there. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> no, that's it. That's it for this episode, Ryan. Thank you very much for joining us and to everyone listening. It's been a really long one but a good one. We hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you on the next episode. We'll be getting Ryan back on for sure.